Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week, I'm going to do a top 10 countdown of my top 10 favourite disaster movies. Now, there's a reason for doing this now. As you may know, on the BBC, I've made a series, been running for a while, called Secrets of Cinema, in which I look at cinema genres and try to take them apart and see how the various constituent parts of them work. And I've written the series with Kim Newman, who's a total walking encyclopedia of film. And we've done episodes about coming-of-age movies and horror movies and heist movies. We did one recently about Christmas movies, then another one about films that tend to be awards winners. Anyway, we've just finished making the documentary about disaster movies. It goes out uh, on BBC4 over the Easter period. I'm not quite sure of the transmission date, but you know, I'll, I'll tweet it and you know, you could, you'll, you'll catch up with it. Anyway, it was really good fun to make. We had a really, really good time doing it. And whilst I was doing it, I thought, okay, I have to do top 10 countdown of my favourite disaster movies. Now, I am sure that you have your own favourites and I'm sure that you'll disagree with some if not all of my choices so give this a listen and then let me know what you would have as your top 10 or top 5 or top 3 even just top number 1 disaster movie so at number 10 Melancholia a a bit of an odd choice and not always classified as a disaster movie I understand but look here's why Most disaster movies are sort of rooted in morality tales and old biblical epics. You know, what happens is you get a setup of a world in which some people are good, some people are bad, then something happens, and during the course of the aftermath, we get to see who survives and who doesn't. And it's often that good character or coming to an understanding that there is more in life than greed or lust or whatever is the thing that will help you survive. Melancholia is a film that begins, literally begins, with the end of the world. Two planets smashing into each other and the whole of planet Earth being obliterated. It's kind of a big plot spoiler. It's like if you're wondering who's going to survive, the answer is no one at all. The film's directed by Lars von Trier and it has a really interesting central idea that really the end of the world is being brought about by one main character's overwhelming depression. As you probably know, Lars von Trier himself had wrestled with depression throughout his career. I interviewed him when Melancholia came out. I went to his um, his studios in Denmark. And he'd made the film, and by the time I had interviewed him, he'd already pretty much gone off it. He decided that it was kind of too soft, 
too swishy. He described it as double whipped cream. And he had real worries about whether or not he'd made a film that was too nice. I mean, this is a film that begins with the whole of the world being wiped out, which is very Lars von Trier. The other thing is that he got into trouble about some things that he'd said in public, which is kind of pretty much standard, you know, Lars von Trier par for the course. But he talked about the fact that the film is about depression and about his own struggles with depression. The other thing I remember about that interview is that we were halfway through it before I realised that Lars, who had spent a lot of the interview with his hand up to his face, touching his face, moving his hand through his hair, had the letters F-U-C-K tattooed onto his fingers. And I... I hadn't even noticed, and it suddenly occurred to me that all the way through this interview, Lars von Trier was waving his hand around, which said the word F-U-C-K. And I said, Lars, you've got the word F-U-C-K tattooed on your fingers. He said, I know, I know, it was just a thing, you know, I had it, you know, I kind of, it was just something I did, I was foolish. I said, what, like, how old were you? He said, oh, like last year. Typical Lars von Trier. The earth is evil. We don't need to grieve for it. Nobody will miss it. But where would Leo grow up? All I know is life on Earth is evil. There may be life somewhere else. So on to number nine, and at number nine, in my countdown of top ten disaster movies, Earthquake. Now, let me say from the outset, Earthquake is not a great film. Earthquake is not a film which is distinguished by a particularly brilliant narrative or great performances, although it's packed with stars. Charlton Heston is, of course, the, the headline on the marquee. But I choose Earthquake because of Sense Around. If you're of a certain age, I'm 56, you'll remember Sense Around being a really, really big deal. The idea of Sense Around was that you wouldn't just see the film, you would feel the film due to the low rumbling bass frequencies that would be broadcast around the theatre. Now, not every theatre showed Earthquake in Sense Around. And I confess that if you were one of the people who saw it in the theatre that didn't have Sense Around, then there was really almost no point in watching the film at all because the whole point of the film was that at certain key sequences, they would run this low bass frequency and it would make you feel... Well, it would make you feel like you had a little touch of indigestion. Or maybe you were sitting on a bus. Or, at very best, it would throw your mind back to the William Castle buzzers in the chair that he used to use for the tingler. The thing about Sense Around is this. It was a really interesting idea. But nowadays, in a world in which every time somebody pulls up alongside you on the pavement in a sports car with some banging bass beats, that's what Sense Around felt like. But back then, we didn't have big bass speakers. Back then, the idea of kind of sub-audible sonic rumbles was really special. I remember going to the ABC Turnpike Lane because it was the only cinema I could get to that had sense around fitted. And sitting there watching Earthquake, just waiting for the sense around to get turned on. Interestingly enough, when the film first played at Groundman's Chinese Theatre in Hollywood, the sense around was so loud that it caused little bits of plastering to fall from the ceiling, and the management had to put a net under the ceiling to catch the bits of plastering. And the story is that they, they chucked in some other larger bits of masonry just to up the ante and give the audience a bit of an extra thrill. Now that would have been the way to see Earthquake. 
Thought you were leaving yesterday, Dr. Adams. We've been held up, but we hope to have most of the instruments planted by noon. Still haven't figured out exactly what it is you fellas are trying to do. It's rather technical. That device records minute variations of seismic waves. Huh. Well, better start my plowing. Thanks again for letting us on your land, Mr. Griggs. Once the trench is filled in, you'd never have known we were here. On to number eight, and something that you probably won't have heard of, I certainly hadn't heard of it until we started researching this documentary. It's an 89-second fragment of film from 1902. It's called Bandits, or The Collapsing Bridge. And, and I only found out about it because friends of mine at the BFI who had written about it said, you have to see this fragment of film. And it's a sequence of film that was shot in the Hippodrome in 1902 of a fairly spectacular theatrical production that involves horses cantering over a bridge that then collapses into a flooding lake or stream full of water. And it's really spectacular. And it was a theatrical performance. And it really shows us where disaster movies came from. Because disaster movies began in old Victorian theatre spectacle. And they used to put on stage versions of uh, famous shipwrecks and famous disasters. People would go to the theatre to watch this stuff happening. The Hippodrome apparently was really famous for this because it had a massive water tank. At one point, the Hippodrome reportedly had an act that involved elephants sliding down a slide into a massive tank full of water. And then every day at the end of the performances, the entire tank would be emptied and would just sluice down into the sewers. And then they do it again the next day. Nowadays, you wouldn't be allowed to do it because I'm sure there are a million health and safety and animal uh, safety regulations. But long before we had disaster movies, which offer the spectacle of huge catastrophe on the screen, people were doing it on stage. And this tiny fragment of film from 1902 shows us that, you know, in the years before Titanic and all the rest of it, People were watching disasters playing out right before their eyes on stage. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On to number seven, and something which could probably be properly classified as a non-disaster movie, Force Nageur, which is a Swedish film, which is brilliant because it's a disaster film in which the disaster doesn't happen, but then it kind of does. So the story is there's a family, and uh, they're up in the mountains, and they are threatened by what they think is an avalanche. There's a controlled explosion, 
and there's a controlled avalanche, but this huge, great big cloud of sort of snow mist starts coming towards the building that they're in. And the father of the family sees it coming, and they think that the avalanche is, is coming to hit them. And he runs, and he runs, and he leaves behind his family. He's the typical bad father. If this was a normal disaster movie, he'd get killed. He wouldn't last because he's, he's failed the moral test. What happens is he runs away, and then the avalanche doesn't come. Everyone's fine. It was just a panic. But the rest of the film is about how can they live with the fact that he ran, that he left the family behind, that he saved himself. I mean, it's a black comedy, and it's very, very dark, because it's about the disaster that happens within the relationship of the family. Once somebody, when confronted with the ultimate choice, decided to abandon his family and ran. I love it. Because Force Majeure is a disaster movie in which the disaster is that the disaster doesn't happen. If you haven't seen it, please do. It's really something. I mean, it's funny, but not that funny. It was quite uh, shocking. I Everyone is fine. I mean, they, they yeah, know what they're right. doing. And he got so scared that he ran away from the table. What? <laughs> and on the subject of funny, at number six in my rundown of the top ten disaster movies of all time, Airplane, the film which was allegedly going to put paid to all disaster movies forevermore. I remember going to see Airplane when it first came out. I don't think I'd really seen anything like it before. I mean, I'd seen... Kentucky Fried Movie, I suppose, which has kind of got similar edges to it, and Animal House, a kind of anarchic American comedy. And the Zucker Brothers were definitely doing something which was an American brand of comedy rather than something that we were kind of used to here in Britain. The thing with Airplane was there was a joke every five seconds, and often there were three or four jokes going on at the same time. Individual scenes that almost played out like sketch comedy, like the kind of thing you would get in Kentucky Fried Movie or, or maybe in Saturday Night Live. And I remember seeing Airplane and starting to laugh at the beginning of it and thinking, okay, it's okay, it'll, it'll ease up. But it didn't, just laughing solidly all the way through. Now, everyone knows all the recurrent gags. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious and don't call me Shirley. It's the hospital. What is it? It's a big building with patients in, but that's not important right now. All that stuff passed into mythology, passed into common parlance. But the most important thing about Airplane was it effectively took all the disaster movie tropes that had flourished throughout the 1970s and turned them on their heads and made them seem utterly ridiculous. You know, the 70s began with Airport, an adaptation of the, uh, of the Arthur Haley novel, and that's really what kicked off the big disaster boom that then gave us all those disaster movies in the 1970s. So the 70s start with Airport, and they end with Airplane. And what Airplane does is ridicule all the tropes, all the tricks, all the, the sort of common stuff that we recognise from disaster movies. And it does it in a way that is just... The quick-fire comedy is so funny. I remember seeing Tim Vine on stage, and Tim Vine has this extraordinary act in which he literally tells unconnected one-liners. So rather than being an observational comic who, who tells a series of stories that lead from one to the other, he literally just does one-liner jokes, like one-handed waiters. They can take it, but they can't dish it out. 
and then he moves on to the next one, and that's it. And it's like a series of one-liners. Well, Airplane was kind of like that, a series of absurd one-liners done in visual format, but around the construct of being the ultimate disaster movie, taking all those disaster movie tropes and making us laugh at them. Can I get you something? Some more folk buttering into the bone, take me up, take me. I'm sorry, I don't understand. Cuddy say can't hang. Oh, stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right, would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck a rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. Which brings me rather nicely to number five. And at number five, Zero Hour, which is the 1957 film upon which Airplane is based. See, the reason that Airplane is such a convincing disaster movie parody is that it is officially a remake of a disaster movie. Zero Hour, starring Dana Andrews and Sterling Hayden. And one of the most remarkable things about Airplane is that some of the things that we think of as the funniest things about it are actually played straight in Zero Hour. There are entire sections of dialogue and script that are lifted directly from Zero Hour. For example, the central idea of Zero Hour is that they are indeed on a plane in which they need to find someone amongst the passengers who can fly a plane and didn't eat the fish. And it is also true that Terry Stryker, who can fly a plane and didn't eat the fish, doesn't want to fly the plane because he hasn't flown the plane since something terrible that happened to him at the end of World War II. Sounds familiar? It's because it's exactly the same plot. It's a really interesting double bill, but what it shows you is that sometimes the very, very best parody works because of exactly how close it is to the original. I mean, I just love the idea that they basically licensed Zero Hour and then took licenses with it. Airplane is really funny. Zero Hour is played with a totally straight face. And it also reminds me that I interviewed Leslie Nielsen once. He just made Repossessed, which was a terrible film, a parody of The Exorcist, which I wanted to be good because it had Linda Blair in it, and I like Linda Blair, but it isn't. But Leslie Nielsen is in it. And Leslie Nielsen had become the guy that did all the straight-faced comedy roles after Airplane. So he's in Airplane, and then he's in the Naked Gun movies. And his whole act was, you know, I play this stuff as comedy, but, but I play it straight. And I said, what did you feel about the change between being a straight actor and then becoming a comedy actor? Because obviously, you know, he's in things like The Poseidon Adventure. He was a very... and, and Forbidden Planet, which is one of my favourite films. He said, you know, the funny thing is I never changed my acting style. He said, I played it all exactly the same. It's just after airplane, everyone felt they were able to laugh. But I just did the same thing. Put yourself in this man's place. Aboard a transcontinental plane, suddenly half the passengers, including your own son, are struck by a paralyzing deadly illness. And then in the midst of the panic and confusion, the stewardess tells you to come forward to the pilot's compartment. This is what you find, a pilotless plane running wild in a stormy sky. Can you fly this airplane and land it? No, not a chance. 
You're the only chance we've got. How could he fly a plane again after the horrible experience that had sapped his courage and ruined his life? But only he, among all the passengers, had any chance at all to save them, even though it was one in a thousand. This is Cross Canada Charter, flight, flight 714, in distress. Come in, anyone. I want you to get on a horn and talk this guy down. You'll have to talk him onto the approach. And so help me, you'll have to talk him right down to the ground. So now, on to number four. And again, you might not think of this immediately as a disaster movie, but I do. Gojira, the original version of Godzilla, the Ashira Honda classic. Now, I know that on one level, Godzilla is a monster movie. It's a film about a giant lizard awakened from the deep that terrorizes Japan. Yes, fair enough. But the disaster that Gojira, the giant lizard, wreaks is the same kind of spectacle that you would get from a disaster movie. And also, it obeys many of the rules of disaster movies. So, for example, one of the things that a lot of disaster movies do is to show us what happens if scientists act irresponsibly. You take that central thing from Jurassic Park, which, incidentally, I think is also a disaster movie. You know, it's a, it's a theme park in which the rides start eating the people. But there's that central scene in which Jeff Goldblum says, and I may be misquoting this, he says, you were, you were so busy trying to find out if you could do it, you didn't stop to think whether you should do it. And there's a whole thread of disaster movies in which this is the case, that scientists do something crazy, and as a result, disaster is wreaked upon the world, disaster is wreaked upon humanity. And actually, we can see the roots of that in the old biblical stories about, you know, about hubris, about mankind trying to do something that makes him a god, mankind playing god, and, and the terrible things that result from it. Although, frankly, when you look at the things that God was meant to have done whilst playing God, they often weren't a whole lot better. Anyway, in the case of Gojira, what happens is the beast is awakened because of H-bomb tests and Bikini Atoll and because of nuclear tests. And essentially, the idea is that mankind has been playing God. Mankind has been using experiments and, and, and uh, you know, weapons that he shouldn't have access to. And as a result of it, this beast has been unleashed from the sea. And the beast basically becomes an embodiment of a natural disaster. I mean, it's an unnatural disaster because it's started by mankind, but it is a natural disaster. One of the incredible things about Gojira, you look at it now, I mean, it, it still looks really, really great. There are all these brilliant stories about the special effects being done by you know, the guy wearing the lizard suit, the guy wearing the massive Godzilla suit, which was so big, so clunky, so hot, that he would regularly collapse from exhaustion and dehydration. The strange thing about it is it's a very sad movie. It's a very melancholy film. It's a film which has got real, proper, political, socio-political underpinning. It's not just about a rampaging lizard. I mean, it is about a rampaging lizard. If you took the lizard out of it, it would be a lot less exciting film. But it has substance. It means something else. It is a disaster movie that has a morality written all the way through it, which is don't mess with this stuff because this is what will happen. This is Tokyo. Once a city of six million people, what has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Now, let's have it, Steve. What about this monster story of yours? Well, it's big and terrible. So we're into the top three now. And 
you may have noticed that because of the age that I am, I kind of think of the golden age of uh, disaster movies as being the 1970s. So at number three, a movie which I have talked about endlessly and I'm, I've become almost infamous for telling an anecdote about Towering Inferno, which I will repeat, but I'll do it very quickly because you'll know it. So at number three, The Towering Inferno. Towering Inferno, which was famously based on two books, The Glass Inferno and The Tower. It was famously made by two studios brought together by producer Erwin Allen because neither wanted to make the movie on their own and neither wanted to compete with the other. Incidentally, this kind of laid the template for what happened with Titanic, because Titanic later on would do the same thing. It would take two studios to get it finished. Anyway, Towering Inferno. Towering Inferno is one of those great all-star cast disaster movies of the 1970s, in which essentially what they do is they take a bunch of famous people, put them somewhere which is really, really dangerous, 135th floor of a really, really tall building, set fire to the building, and then watch the drama play out as we see who will survive, who won't survive, you know, what are the rules of engagement. And at the centre of it are two central characters, the fire chief and the architect, played by Steve McQueen and Paul Newman, and the famous story about them, they wanted equal billing, no one wanted to go second to the other one, so on the poster, one of the names is left but lower, the other name is right but higher. So it turns out they're equal billing. Also, they had exactly the same number of lines. None of that mattered when I saw Towering Inferno back in the 1970s. I mean, none of that was in my mind when I saw it. I just thought, this is a really brilliant film. I mean, for a start, it looked spectacular. It was full of stars, like Fred Astaire. I think it might have been the first Fred Astaire film I watched. I have memories of watching things like Shall We Dance on, on the television, but I don't think I'd seen a Fred Astaire movie in the cinema before. And Fred Astaire is a real central part of that film. He's the character who perhaps learns the biggest lesson. He starts out as a con man, and during the, the course of the narrative, he becomes something quite different. I saw Towering Inferno three times in the same week because I was so jaw-dropped by the spectacle of it. In the second one of those screenings, I, I sat in the cinema with two guys who were like a few rows away from me who spent the entire movie talking to each other about ways that they, you could escape from the building. It was like they were looking at it as some kind of practical problem. I mean, I asked them to be quiet, but it, it was the 1970s. Nobody paid any attention to that stuff. So I asked them to be quiet, and they weren't. And then after a while, I thought, you know what? I'll just listen to what they're saying. And they were coming up with all these cockamamie ideas about how you could do this, and you could do that, and you could do the blah, 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 blah. And I knew what the ending was, because I'd already seen it, so I knew how it was that they finished the thing. And it became quite interesting seeing that one of the things the film was doing was making them try and solve the problem. And Erwin Allen always said that the key thing about disaster movies is it puts you in the centre of the disaster from a safe distance, because you're watching from the sidelines, and it makes you think, what would I do? Towering Inferno is not a short movie, and these guys talked through the whole movie. Literally, from the beginning of the movie to the end, it was like they were there. I mean, they weren't there. They were in the Odeon in Hendon. But they were there in terms of the drama. All, they, so much so that they could not stop arguing about the best way of getting out of the Towering Inferno. And I do think that's one of the reasons why the film has endured. One of the reasons why the film still has the charm that it does. We can blow the tanks two floors above the promenade room. They hold a million gallons of water. That's more than enough to drown the fire. You're crazy. It might. It's the only way. 
body in all the work. You could kill everybody up there. I don't think so. You don't think? When you take into account the stress and load factors, the building design... Wait a minute, just hold it. Mike, look, we've already made the decision. Now, someone has got to go up there, rig the charges, and blow them. Now, there's only two people in the department qualified for that. That's you and Connors. They just, they just brought Connors down. He's on his way to the burn center. So, into the top two of my top ten disaster movies. And at number two, San Francisco. And I'm choosing San Francisco, which is a classic old disaster movie, way, way back. I'm choosing San Francisco largely because of one of its final scenes. When we were doing this documentary, we sat down and watched a bunch of disaster movies, and San Francisco was one of them. San Francisco is a sort of classic thing, like love triangle, a whole bunch of stuff going on, disaster strikes, you know, who survives at the end. And I've always said that the thing with disaster movies is that they're morality tales that you kind of, you can tell how things are going to work out in the same way as... You know, the whole scream thing about if you do this, you'll survive. If you do that, you won't survive. And disaster movies play with those ideas. But they, they also play with the idea of redemption. That somehow, through the tragedy, redemption must happen. And at the very end of San Francisco, in which there's been this earthquake and d- destruction and people think that other people are dead and blah, 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 blah. There is a whole final three or four minutes in which the central character, who's a nightclub owner, sees that the woman he's in love with, Jeanette McDonald, isn't dead. It's Clark Gable. And he sees that she's survived. And he he discovers she's survived because he hears her singing a hymn that wafts over the destroyed wasteland. And he falls down on his knees and he says, "I, I, I want to thank God. How do I do it? And he's told, well, just say whatever's in your heart. And so he says, God, thank you. Thank you. This is great. Thanks ever so much. Well done. Doesn't say, you know, thanks for the earthquake. He says, thanks so much. And then he stands up and Jeanette McDonald sees him. And she's singing this hymn. And she sees him. And she walks over towards him. And there's this kind of moment of kind of choral joy. And then somebody shouts, We'll build a new San Francisco, at which point, in a scene which is weirdly uh, like a pre-echo of the beginning of The Sound of Music, the whole cast pretty much join hands and march over the brow of the horizon singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. <laughs> it's, honestly, it's, you have to see it, to, but it's so brilliant because it's like, it's like Airplane but straight face. So in fact, in many ways, it's kind of zero hour. In fact, if you put the end of San Francisco on the end of airplane, it wouldn't look out of place. It's genius. It's madness, but it's genius. Thanks, God. Thanks. I really mean it.
So, just to do a top 10 countdown up to my number one, at number 10, Melancholia, number nine, Earthquake, at eight, that fragment of film from 1902, Bandits, at seven, Force Majeure, six, Airplane, five, Zero Hour, four, Gojira, three, Towering Inferno, number two, San Francisco. What could possibly be at number one? Well, there's only one choice. It's the Poseidon Adventure. Why? Because the Poseidon Adventure has got it all. It's got everything. It was a movie that was advertised with the phrase hell upside down, which is one of the great taglines of all time. And the story is the SS Poseidon, for reasons of, of, of greed and corruption, is, is following a course that will lead it through a dangerous passage. It gets hit by a tidal wave. It gets turned upside down, like literally the world is turned upside down. And the surviving passengers now have to crawl their way up to the bottom of the boat to get out through the hull. And they're led by Gene Hackman, who is a religious figure, who is having an ongoing argument with God. And he, what he has to do is to unite all the various forces and to understand the strengths and weaknesses of everybody. So the brilliant thing about the film is it's got everything. It's got jaw-dropping special effects. I mean, the, the capsizing scene is just fantastic. It's got a brilliant stunt in which a guy falls through what used to be a skylight and is now on the floor, and he falls like 150 feet. It's got stars. It's got spectacle, but it's got substance. And again, I remember being taken to see The Poseidon Adventure and just being so engrossed by it. And here's, here's the key. Here's the, the reason why it's number one for me. And this actually applies to all disaster movies. The thing that disaster movies do is this. They confront you with the spectacle of catastrophe and death. And yet, weirdly enough, they make you feel very alive. I mean, partly they make you feel alive because you're a spectator and you're kind of thanking your lucky stars that you're not involved in whatever this situation is. But also they work in the same way that horror movies do. They make you feel alive by showing you the spectre of death. And I think that in the end, disaster movies are very closely linked to horror movies. That, that same adrenaline rush, that same sense of what would I do, that same sense of being one of the survivors is weirdly uplifting. I mean, not necessarily uplifting enough that you'd want to walk over the brow of a hill singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic, but uplifting enough that you know that you're alive and in that moment. And that, I think, is the irony of it all. Disaster movies are, in the end, at their very best, oddly life-affirming, which seems very strange, considering that what they're all about is destruction. Chief, the captain wants you on the phone. Chief here, go ahead. Joe, what the hell's going on down there? Is there nothing more you can do with those stabilizers? There's nothing wrong with the stabilizers, so there's nothing more I can do with them. Besides, I've got my hands full with this pump. You know damn well what the trouble is. It's that bastard Lenarcos. Would you care to repeat yourself? He's standing right here. Good, I hope he heard me. All right, Joe. Do the best you can until we clear this weather. So 
there we are. That's my countdown of my top 10 favorite disaster movies. Now, I'm sure that you will have your own choices, your own favorites. There'll be ones in there that you disagree with. Let me know. The best way to get in touch is on Twitter, at Movie. And uh, let me know what your choices would be, what you liked, what you didn't like, what was, what had a really profound effect on you. Also, watch out for the Secrets of Cinema Disaster Movie Special, which is playing at some point on BBC Four over the Easter period. As I said, follow me on Twitter, and I'll make sure that you that you don't miss it. And if you've enjoyed listening to this Kermit on Film podcast, please remember to subscribe. Thank you, and keep watching the skies. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.